disrupt yourself? How will you disrupt yourself? How will you disrupt yourself? On today's show. Often, you know, the CEO tells these people, I'm going to protect you. And you are here to be a change. You are here to disrupt. Don't worry. The company will push back. But you have, you know, I have your back. I'm going to be with you. And so here you see these people arrive and do disrupt. They really disrupt. The problem is that, you know, you can disrupt without destroying. And too many people instead, they confuse the idea of disrupting with destroying. And so it's the role of these people, but it's also the role of the people above them to understand how to integrate them in the right way within the current organization. Welcome back to the Disrupt Yourself podcast. I'm your host, Whitney Johnson, CEO of Disruption Advisors, where we help you grow your people to grow your organization because organizations don't disrupt, people do. And the building block of that growth, it's you. In just a moment, you'll hear my conversation with Mauro Porcini, Chief Design Officer at PepsiCo and author of the book, The Human Side of Innovation, The Power of People in Love with People. Mauro was the very first Chief Design Officer at both PepsiCo and 3M, jobs that were created for him. He's one of the world's leading designers in part because he has a superpower for putting teams together. It's his eye for the glue that holds innovators together that sets Mauro apart. And that's what this new book is about, finding people who have a passion for their work and then getting them to work together. But I'll let Mauro speak for himself. I hope you enjoy. I would love for you to share with us a formative story, ideally something from your childhood that will help us have a thought that says, oh yes, that makes sense why he has pursued the life's work that he has pursued. Wow, we start with a very difficult question. <laughs> Every time I talk about my journey, my personal journey, my professional journey, I can't help but thinking about the role of my parents. Both my mother and my father were people that never believed in the power of fame or wealth. Uh, they were humble people. For them, there were two very important values in life. One was the idea of being a good person. For them, that will translate in the, in the Catholic religion, but later on I realized that those values are totally universal. The second set of values that they had were all about this idea of culture and knowledge, learning and seeing life as an opportunity of learning more and more and more. For them, the, their, their dream for their child was to either become a priest, that was the ideal uh, scenario, or eventually a dream that I had was for me to become a professor in university so that I could practice this idea of culture and, and, you know, and make a job out of it. Those two values became very, very important for me in my entire journey. I realized later on in life how important eventually were other things like networking and, and all of this. But, but too many times when I talk to people today, especially young people, and I hear that their goal is to become famous. Their goal is to become rich. Uh, and we hear this, you know, in conversations of any kind, we witness this in social media. When I see all of this, I'm like, oh my God. I mean, we're really setting ourselves as a society or these people are setting themselves as individuals for failure. Because first of all, if that's your goal, many of us, many of you won't reach 
you know, that fame and success that you think will bring your happiness. But even for the few that we reach the fame and wealth, it doesn't mean you're going to be happy if you miss all the other values that are really important to realize that happiness. And so we really need to spread this idea out there that the goal of our society, the goal of our companies, the goal of us as employees, as human beings, as family members, as friends, it needs to be the one of realizing our happiness. And we need to understand what are the real levers for that happiness, what are the real things that we need to do to reach that happiness. So if I think back uh, to you know, my childhood, uh, there are so many things that happened back then that gave me these kind of values. And back then I didn't even realize this. I realized what my parents did just recently, going through a major crisis in my life a few years ago uh, that made me aware of certain things that my parents gave me that really became the anchor uh, to navigate the storm of life and then find my way and, 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 and realize my happiness. So you, you have these two pillars of be a good person and learn. Is there a story or an experience with one or both of your parents that comes to mind that really captures those two values? Look, um, there is one specific about, you know, the idea of being sensitive to others. Uh, that is a memory of when I was really, really young. I was probably, I don't know, probably seven, eight years old, seven or eight. We were in the, in the Giardini Publicis, in these big gardens that there are in the town of Varese, where I used to live, one hour driving from Milan. And I was um, there with my parents, and in front of me there was this, I think it's called the monkey ladder, the one where you hang with your hands and then you go. Oh, the monkey bars. The monkey bars. So here I am in front of the monkey bars and I want to go up there. And, but before me arrive another child and the child goes up before me. And so I, I, I wait for him to go from one side of the bar to the other. He goes down and then I can go. So I go up, I go all the way to the other side. And then without going down, I turn myself and I go back. And, you know, at that age to do something like this, it required a lot of strength. And so I go down from the bar and then I, I see my parents annoyed. I mm. can't understand why. And we start to walk away from the bar and going, you know, somewhere else we're supposed to go. And essentially they tell me, well, we really didn't like the way you behave. What did they do? I just, and, and they told me, well, you wanted to show off in front of that other kid. You wanted to show that you are better than him and that you are able to, you know, go all the way there and go back. And for me, it was shocking in two different ways. One, because it was not true. I was not doing that. So imagine, you know, as a child being accused of something you didn't do. And it was really, really painful. And this is the reason why probably I remember this today. I would, it is what it is. It can happen, you know, that you accuse somebody and this person, uh, it was innocent. But the, the other reason is that I didn't realize that I was actually doing something wrong. And probably I didn't, but in the meantime, that helped me. This is just one episode, but this has been all my life as a child. My parents were always pushing me to understand how other people around me will feel. Uh -huh. We call it empathy, right? 
And they will do it in this way, not explaining, oh, you should think about how, you know, the other kid will think. They should, you know, probably it was a education approach. It was more typical of 50 years ago, but they would be like, you know, they would be annoyed because of what they did. And then I would understand by myself, it became automatic. You, you would start to think all the time, am I hurting somebody, the feelings of somebody by doing certain things? For me, it was so normal. I mean, I was thinking all the parents do that and all the kids behave in this way. You need to think about the others around you. You need to be sensitive to them. I realized later in life that it's not really like this. Mm. And, and today I'm very conscious of the importance of those behaviors. For many years, I was not. I was just behaving in that way. The moment you become conscious of the value of certain behaviors, then you can pitch them, you can preach them, you can use them when you build your teams, when you your family, when you interact with your uh, friends or people close to you or even your colleagues. So they taught you at a very young age the importance of empathy. You were internalizing how do other people feel? Yeah. That, by the way, I, I use the word empathy because it's a word that we use extensively also in the working environment. I think they taught me also the idea of kindness. Mm. That is one step beyond empathy. You You can have enough empathy to understand what other people feel. And, you know, if you think about the etymological meaning of empathy, the moment you feel what other people feel, if they suffer, somehow you tend to suffer with them. I mean, you have that kind of empathy. Kindness requires action on that empathy. Mm -hmm. I feel that you suffer eventually. You feel that you are happy. I feel anything that you feel. And then I act on it because I want to make sure that I'm helping you or that I'm amplifying your positive feelings. And that's why for me, empathy is a very, very important uh, characteristic that we all need to have as human beings and also as innovators and people in the business world. But kindness is even more important than that. Which goes to the title of your book, The Human Side of Innovation, The Power of People in Love with People. So it's not only knowing how people feel but also acting on that with kindness. Well, look, we were talking recently um, in our own company in PepsiCo with a series of colleagues from different functions inside the organization about human centricity and how we can really amplify as much as possible human centricity in the company. And there were many conversations about the tools and the platforms and what to do around this idea of human centricity. Many of these conversations were going in the direction of we need to increase the number of times that our own employees across the entire corporation talk with the users, the consumers, the clients, the people out there. We have, you know, today different digital platforms that could increase this listening. It could be passive listening. You just observe consumer groups and all kinds of things. You know, you interact with people. It could be even conversations. So you interact in an active way with these people. You can go out and go to a store. But again, there are many new ways to do it regularly also from your home or from your office. And so many, many conversations about this. The reality is that human centricity is so much more than that. So listening is important. And often in companies of any kind, it doesn't happen enough. So you have so many people that work from their offices and they don't talk to the people that are serving. But you may listen to people and don't care at all about what <laughs> they, they feel or what they want. Or even before that, you may listen to people and not understand what they 
want and what they're telling you. Even when they're telling you something and they mean something very different. How many times did it happen when you talk about brands and products and services of any kind? So human centricity is about listening to people. It's about giving our own organization, our people, the ability to understand what they're saying, what these people are saying. And then the next step is caring about what they're saying. And again, you know, why people will think, well, why wouldn't you care? You're listening to them. Of course you care. Well, maybe because your business priorities are different in the short term. Maybe because your incentive are really focused on the specific year and you need to bring financial results, the specific year and what you're listening implies that you need to change things in your organization with results that will come in the coming years. There are 20 billion reasons why you may understand what they say, but you don't care. You just keep doing what you used to do. And then finally, I say, I use the word doing. You listen, you understand, you care, and then you act on it. There is an action component. You may even care, but then acting is too difficult. Mm. Uh, it's too complicated. It's too risky. There are so many different reasons why, well, I care. I really would like to do the right thing. But you know what? <laughs> I, I, I just too risky. There are many other reasons. Imagine instead of you design a, a beverage or you design a computer or a car, instead of having on the other side of the computer, the beverage of the car, millions of people that you're serving, imagine now you are designing them for your daughter or for your mother or for your uh, husband or wife or significant other. <sighs> of course, you're going to try to do the best of the best of the best that you can. You're going to create a product, a brand, a service, an experience that are extraordinary because you care about that. This is how innovation started. The first men or women, you know, in the prehistoric age, they decided to take what was available in nature and modify the status quo to create something different. They were, those people were the first innovators. Those people that for the first time took a stone and another stone and they started to scratch them one with the other to create a tool, a tool hunting, a tool uh, later on to prepare your food, a tool later on to decorate your body, a tool later on to decorate a cave or create something to celebrate your gods. All of these things, that by the way, Maslow, thousands of years later, decodified in his uh, pyramids of needs, were serving all the needs that these people had, physiological needs, safety needs at the bottom of the pyramid, food and hunting. Uh, the middle is your identity, your connection with other, all the way to the transcendence and something bigger than you and the purpose and, and you may have in life. All of these are needs of people. And back then, you were creating this product. You were innovating for yourself as an act of love towards yourself as, and then as an act of love for people close to you. You were creating that object and giving it to somebody that you knew. And then after a while, we started to create many of these objects. And at a certain point, there were too many for each individual to create by themselves. And so they started to go to their neighbors, to other people, and they will tell them, okay, you create few of these objects, I create few others, and we exchange them. And then after that, you scale it up and you start to create the idea of work, the idea of companies, the idea of brands. And fast forward thousands of years later, we, we, we lost the original meaning of that act of love, of that act of innovation. And we started to confuse love 
we profit. And mm. instead of creating something that is amazing for people you really care about, people in love with people, we started to create something that will generate as much profit as possible for our organizations, forgetting you know, the love and creating therefore many products that are okay, good enough, sometimes average and mediocre. Uh, but, you know, eventually the entire industry is moving, you know, in the dynamic balance, creating this kind of products and this kind of experiences and brands. They're good enough. And this is what we've been living for so many years. Yeah, I, I love that you said we confuse love with profit. I would like to have us go back to a, a few decades for you when you were 27 years old. You started at 3M and you want to make changes. You want to make big changes. And you have no formal power to speak of. You're fairly junior. You're just out of school. So speaking of this idea of listen, understand, care, act, what did you do to get people to change, to implement these ideas that you were thinking about? First of all, I was really passionate about what I was doing. I really believed in it. And I was living those ideas in my work, outside of my work. So people could feel the authenticity and the passion uh, of that kid. And so I mentioned this because it's important when you need to inspire other people, if these people understand that you have the passion, you really believe in those ideas, is already a good starting point. The second thing is to have those ideas, to understand <laughs> how to build, you know, have a vision, have a dream. And I say this, it sounds so obvious. Yeah, of course, you enter a company, you're going to have a vision, a plan. And the reality is that often that's not the case. You know, we, as, as human beings, as kids, we're all born with that ability to dream. We all dream as children. And then at a certain point, people tell us, well, dreaming is a little bit childish, but we still keep dreaming in a way or the other. We go to school, we go to college, we get out of college, we enter these companies, and eventually we think that we can change them. We can change an industry, you can change a brand, you can change a product, until once again, people arrive, and at a certain point, they tell you, what you're saying is just naive, it's childish. And there are even extreme situations where they come to you and they tell you, how arrogant it is from you to think that you can change this company. It's been around for hundreds of years of these products or brands. And so at a certain point, once again, we stop dreaming. We think that it's wrong, that we're doing something wrong, that actually it is childish. And in reality, you need to dream. If you don't dream, you will never be able to change anything. Society keep progressing, keep changing, because there are few anomalies, you know, few people that have anomalies in the way of thinking and in their genetic system, and they keep dreaming. Now, so having a vision, having a dream is key. But the other component is the pragmatism of making things happen. So balancing the dream with execution. And, and this has been key for me in 3M. Essentially, what I was doing was on one side, perfectly understanding what they were expecting from me. Design, pretty products. For them, design was styling. So design, beautiful uh, video projector, tape dispenser for scotch, post-it dispensers, uh, cleaning tools for the house, you know, in the portfolio of brands and products that the company had, they wanted to add styling. The dream was instead connected to what I thought the company really needed. And how did I arrive to the dream? How did I arrive to the vision? How did I arrive to the realization of what the company really needed? Well, I used another thing that children do a lot. By the way, not just children, but also the philosophers. I started to ask why. 
And when I got my first answer, I started to ask why again, and then why again, and why, 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 until you arrive to the root cause of everything, to the primary cause of everything. And so, and, and again, children do it all the time. The philosophers is their methodology to, uh, to arrive to what drives us as human beings, the world and society. When they were asking me, well, design stylish dispenser of tape and post-it, why do you want me to do that? Well, because competition is starting to do it. Why competition is starting to do it? Well, because the world back then was starting to change globalization, new technologies, and there were so many entrants that could enter those markets without the big barriers to entry that these companies used to have in the past because of globalization and new technologies. And they were using styling as an easy competitive advantage. They didn't require any particular investment uh, to go and compete with the big corporations. So long story short, without telling you all the story, with this technique, I realized what the company really needed. They didn't need stylish products. They needed to change completely the way they were looking at innovation with a very human-centered approach, with a much more agile way of working. And so I started to work behind the scenes to try to drive that. And how do you do that, do you do that in a very pragmatic way? Well, you have your vision, you give the company what they ask you, else you lose your job in six months. And then in parallel, you start to find what they call the co-conspirators inside the organization, people in marketing, in R&D, in other functions different than mine, so with a different kind of role in the organization. And together, we will build prototype of that idea of what we could do. The prototype is, is essentially a very powerful proof point to excite people to show that what you're talking about is real, to uh, inspire sponsorship, funding. And, and you start to build a few and then more people will arrive. They will help you through resources, through you know working with you to build more prototypes and more proof points and more and more until you arrive to a situation where you can scale it up and really go back to the company and be like, okay, now we were just prototyping. We show you the value of these ideas. Let's bring it to the next level. Let's mm -hmm. scale it up. Mm. So it's interesting. I, I heard you say the passion. You you needed to feel the sense of this is important. I care about this, and and that was contagious. You, when you had the ideas, uh, you well, you had ideas, which was important, but also you didn't allow people to quash your passion, quash your enthusiasm. And then I think the very powerful thing you said is you have to execute. You have to be designing those pretty products as you just described, but in tandem with executing, you're also looking for your people, people who will work with you, work together to, to take your vision, create a prototype, create something tangible that people can grab onto, get excited about, and then start to want to build that. And that's how you brought people along. Am I missing anything? Uh, no, it's a perfect summary and, and you are highlighting a very important point. We don't live anymore in a world where you can change the game by yourself. There is, this is not a one man or one woman show time anymore. Uh, there is such a hyper-specialization in all the different fields happening today and the need for companies to be competitive, to be extraordinary in multiple dimensions. Uh, because of all of this, you need teamwork. You need extraordinary talent in R&D, in marketing, in design, in finance, in HR, in all the different functions to succeed. W why this is different today than 30 years ago? For a simple reason, the competitive scenario years ago was not as fierce as it is today. Today, 
anybody listening to us right now in this moment can get out with an idea. Again, you need the idea to start and get easily access to funding compared to 30, 40 years ago um, through platforms like kickstarter.com as an example here in the United States or through the proliferation of investment funds and incubator hunting for the next big idea, for the next startup. So you get funding in an easier way. The cost of manufacturing is going down driven by new technologies and uh, globalization. Um, that gives you the possibility to start a new enterprise or a new initiative of any kind, often with small scale, small investments out of your bedroom, not even your garage, like you know, at the times of Steve Jobs and Apple, as an example. And, and then you can go straight to your end users through the digital platforms to sell them products and services and brands through e-commerce and then to build your ecosystem of communication through social media. Well, in all these areas that I just mentioned, companies in the past were building their huge barriers to entry made of scale of production, communication and distribution. Today, that's not happening anymore. I know right now that there are millions of people out there thinking about how to take down the beverage brands you know, that my companies work uh, and, and working for, that my company produce, or the food, uh, the food brands that we produce. And, and, and many of them are actually are, are acting on it and they're entering the market. And this leaves the small companies and the big ones with just one option, focusing on what people really want, their needs, their wants. And at 360 degrees, you need the best product, the best packaging, the best retail experience, the best communication, the best digital experience. You need to be extraordinary in all dimensions. In the past, it was enough that you are extraordinary in one dimension, technology or distribution or your brand. And then again, with those barriers, you could protect everything else. Mm. Today, you have one weakness. You may have a great product. An iconic brand is not sustainable. Well, competition will enter exactly from the weakness uh, to compete with you. And so because of this, you need people inside these companies that move at the speed of light, in perfect sync with each other, agile, flexible, um, kind to each other, really working as one team, and, and with this extreme specialization, but also this ability to bring everybody with you. Again, team trumps individuals, you know, big time in this new age we're in. Yeah, and I want to talk about your team at Pepsi in just a minute. But before we do that, I have this curiosity. So so can you tell us what was your role at 3M when you started and your role at 3M when Pepsi came calling? What how how had you graduated? <laughs> so the title was a design coordinator for the consumer business that was one of the six businesses of the company just in Europe. There was one of the markets of the company that is everywhere in the world. I left the company uh, as the chief design officer of the corporation with teams reporting to me in the US, in, uh, in Italy, in uh, Japan, in China, and in Brazil. Uh, so it was an amazing 10 years journey. I was 27 when I started and I left, I was 37. Um, yeah, so in the, when I was 30, I became uh, the head of global design of the company. That's, by the way, uh, I'm Italian. I love, love Italy. I love my country. I love our culture. But this is something that happened because I was working for an American corporation. And this is, Americans should be proud and aware of this. The meritocracy that you have in this country is something that nobody should ever take for granted. Uh, in other countries, it's not really like this. 
So in your book, you you talked about this language that you were using, and I and I have a curiosity here because on this podcast we talk about growing yourself to grow your people, and you you said that in your performance reviews, and I'm not going to get this right, so you'll have to correct this, but you would you were very clear to people about your ambition, what you aspired to do, and they would sort of say that's cute, and then you would go back and you would do your work, and then the next year you would say here's what I aspire to do, and they're like that's cute, but then eventually you did it. And I'm just wondering, what was your self-talk? Because I think, you know, I really believe that if you can say it out loud, you can make it happen. Do you remember what what was going on in your brain? When I was a child, uh, I was fascinated by the people that I was studying at school. Even more than, you know, you may be fascinated by a celebrity, a movie actor. Yeah, yeah obviously I was intrigued by them. But for me, wow, Michelangelo. Uh, or uh, our, you know, famous philosophers or writers from Italy and beyond. Uh, I remember studying Cartes and, and many Italian poets, and I was fascinated by them. I realized today, I didn't realize back then, that I was fascinated by their ability to touch the hearts of people thousands of years or hundreds of years of decades after they were death, mm. how they became immortal. So it, it was, that was so much more powerful than the celebrity I would watch in television, right? Again, I know this today. Back then, it was totally unconscious. So, and when I was a child, I wanted, therefore, to become an artist or a, a, an author, a writer. Uh, they were my two dreams, you know, art, drawing, painting, and then writing were coming very natural to me. I loved doing it. And I mentioned this for a reason. That was just the manifestation of something that was much broader than painting or, or, or writing. I was always passionate about touching the hearts, the souls, the minds of people in a way or the other with something tangible. And I realized when I discovered the world of design, I realized that I could do what I was dreaming of doing as an artist artist or as a, as a writer uh, through design as well. And I saw these companies, the 3M, the PepsiCo, before the Philips of the world, or my own startup when I created my startup, as a way to reach people. So in all these years, I never looked at 3M, at PepsiCo as a company to serve, a company where I will move in the, you know, the career ladder one step at a time from one position to the other. Although also, by the way, because design didn't exist neither in PepsiCo nor in 3M. So I needed to build my career ladder and my next position and the reason, you know, for me to be promoted. But but the point is that I always looked at these companies as platforms to create something amazing that will touch the life of people. And ideally, that somehow would also disrupt the industry by doing something different, meaningful, unique. That was what always was what was driving me. And, and for me, for many years, it's been so obvious. I'm like, of course, you are in a company like this, you do that. And then you realize that many people instead, they're thinking, okay, my boss is asking me to do this. I have this in my performance review. By the end of the year, I need to deliver that. And so I'm going to do that. Because if I do that, I'm going to get you know, that salary increase. I'm going to be safe. I'm going to get the next position in two years. After two years, you knock the door of people above you and you're like, oh, it's time for me to get the promotion. And sometimes you don't understand because you're not getting the promotion. Well, you're not getting the promotion because you're not really creating meaningful value for these companies. And the best way to create meaningful value for the companies is actually the one of thinking about how to create meaningful value for people, for society, and understanding how to make that work within your company, 
with the platform that your company is giving you, respecting the company, loving the company. I deeply love the opportunity that PepsiCo and 3M before gave me and are still giving me uh, in doing this job. I love, love, love what they're doing, but I see these companies as platforms to do something much bigger than the companies themselves. You've kind of answered this question, but I, I want to get a little bit more specific. So you've you've now joined Pepsi, PepsiCo, and in the book, you shared a little bit about assembling your team of, of the, the the cast of characters that you needed around you in order to to make this happen. And there was one particular, uh, and obviously you had the support of the CEO, the C, the former and the current CFO wrote the forward for your book, so you had you had support from from top down, but you also assembled a team and you you got people to buy into the vision of what you were doing. And, and I want to read something to you, and then I'm going to say one other idea and see if you can put them all together. So you talk about when creating new products, there are three pillars of innovation, the human beings, the desirability of the product, then there's the science or technology, is the product technically feasible, and then the business, is it economically viable? So you talk about those are those three pillars. Then I thought it was really interesting as I was thinking about your friend Martin, and you recruited him to come with you to work with you at Pepsi. And it almost feels like, and maybe I'm connecting dots too too much, but you used this framework in recruiting him to bring him on board to build what you wanted to build at PepsiCo. And you did that with a lot of different people. What are your thoughts when I say that? The framework that you just described is, is what we designers call design thinking. Those are the three filters, the three lenses of design thinking. And design thinking essentially is a way to do innovation. And when you Google innovation, immediately uh, you, you find results that connect innovation to products, to technologies. But the reality is that innovation uh, happens every time you take something and you modify the status quo with the idea of improving the status quo, of bettering that situation. And so by definition, innovation can be applied to the way you build teams and you design culture. So for sure, I've been applying the lenses of design thinking to everything um, I've been doing all these years, including what I call the meta project of designing culture and designing the capability to drive the culture. So in the hiring of my teams, in the way I organize them, in the way I, I have them working together. Uh, is and, and there is always that triple lens of uh, desirability feasibility and viability. Uh, there is also another angle of the same kind of um, discipline of design thinking that maybe explains what I did even better. Uh, is the design thinking is defined also as the crossroad of empathy, strategy, and prototyping. Are very similar to the three lenses that you mentioned, but it's a story that you tell in a different way. So empathy is understanding what is relevant to people, really understanding the human beings. Okay, so let's let's apply this to hiring. Empathy is about understanding what kind of humans you need. And for me, that has been always the most important thing. We can talk more about this why and, and what happened at a certain point in my life and when I had this huge realization that changed literally, you know, my trajectory in 3M and then later in PepsiCo. But first, understanding what are the key traits of these human beings that I need to have in my team and be scientific, strategic, consistent in, you know, the way you look for these people and the characteristics that you need. Strategy is about 
the relevance for the company. So can I take this kind of individuals and can I plug them in the culture of this company without alienating either them or the rest of the company? And it's not just about plugging them, but how do I organize them amongst each other? So the organization, the design of my own team, and then how can I build connections and interactions with the rest of the company? Now, this is very important because there is a very fine balance to find when you try to innovate a culture. And this is a typical mistake that many companies often do. They either bring in people that are not disruptive enough, that are too similar to the rest of the organization. And then so they blend in and nothing change. Or in the opposite way, they bring people in that are really different and, and they tell them, look, often, you know, the CEO tells these people, I'm going to protect you and you are here to be a change agent. You are here to disrupt. Don't worry. The company will push back, but you have, you know, I have your back. I'm going to be with you. And so here you see these people arrive and do disrupt. They really disrupt. The problem is that, you know, you can disrupt without destroying. And too many people instead, they confuse the idea of disrupting with destroying. And so it's the role of these people, but it's also the role of the people above them to understand how to integrate them in the right way within the current organization. Something that, for instance, Indra Nui did in a very, in a great way. Indra Nui being the, you know, superstar CEO of PepsiCo when I joined the company. Uh, she was very explicitly and publicly sponsoring design. But she was never, ever forcing design on her direct report, the CEOs of, you know, the United States and Latin America, the different regions of the world or the CMOs, she will never go to them and tell them, you must use Mauro's team and design, never. But she, oh, she would always ask in a project when she was seeing that things were not going in the right direction or that design was obviously not involved, she would ask, what was the role of design here? I, I, you know, and it, it, if the answer was not what she was expecting, she was like, did you talk with Mauro? Did you talk with the team? Uh, so she was nudging. Them, mm -hmm. certain things, but without ever imposing it because she didn't want to, that, to alienate them. She wanted them to embrace what I was doing uh, by themselves. Um, I arrived, I knew that I had the you know, sponsorship of the CEO. I never abused that. I always tried to be linked and connections and partnerships, find what I call the co-conspirators. From the very beginning, I map the organization with HR to find the co-conspirators, people uh, willing to work with us to build proof points, to prototype the new ideas, to disrupt together, first in small scale, and then you grow up. Wait, how did you do that? Did you sit down with HR and what, what yeah. did you ask them? So maybe I, I should go back one step. Let me yeah. tell you what happened in the first time I met Indra Nui. So here I am, interview with Indra. I was still at 3M and she interviews me for, for the job. And very quickly, the conversation moved from what I designed in my life, so as a designer, my portfolio, to the design of culture. She was in the middle of uh, the, a big transformation of the company. She was introducing uh, the idea of this global organization. She was uh, driving the idea of performance with purpose, health and wellness, diversity, many different huge, big initiatives to change the culture of the organization. So I share with her an approach, the five steps I used in 3M to transform 
the innovation culture of the company, or at least, you know, to introduce a human centricity and design centricity in the way 3M was doing innovation. There are five phases. The first one is what I call the phase of denial, is when the company doesn't realize that they need a different kind of approach. This happens all the time. At the beginning, a company, especially the successful one, they don't want to admit that you really need to change. Thank God, sooner or later, there is somebody, a sponsor, a CEO, an executive, it needs to be somebody at the top of the company that understands that you need to change. Uh, if that doesn't happen, then situations like what happened to Blockbusters or Kodak or many other companies out there, they're going to happen. But usually somebody realizes. So when they realize, they try to drive the change. In the case of 3M, uh, somebody at the top of the company decided to hire this kid in Italy at 20, when he was 27 to infuse design in the company. Back then, it was a very safe bet because he was 27 years old, you know, in the periphery of the American empire. If the kid was going to fail, nobody would even realize. Uh, PepsiCo took a more visible bet with a very high position from the very beginning. But long story short, you know, here I am back then in 3M, I take my suitcase, I travel all the way to Minnesota to meet all these leaders in R&D, in business, and I start to pitch these different ideas. And, and everybody loved them. Like, love at first sight. Everybody was excited about these ideas. So I remember going back to the sponsor that I had, the exe executive vice president of the consumer business. His name is Mo Nozari. I go to Mo and I tell him, Mo, this is great. Everybody's getting it. What we want to do is going to be so much easier than what I was thinking to drive design in the company. And Mo, that is always a serious man, that day was more serious than ever. He looks at me, you know, with those serious eyes. <laughs> and he's like, they're all lying to you. But Mo, no, 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 no. I was there. You know, I was in the room. I have this huge empathy and I feel people. And, and Mo keeps looking at me. It's like, I'm telling you that they're all lying to you. And then he goes on with a, a, a metaphor and he explains what he meant. He told me, Mauro, imagine you are in an art gallery and you have a beautiful painting in front of you and you have your pocket full of money. What do you do? You buy the painting. Well, Mauro, you and design, you're one of the many paintings in the 3M art gallery. And all my people are buying other paintings and they're not buying you. Meaning that he knew perfectly the budget that they had and he knew that even if they were excited by this thing called design, they were putting their money on other priorities, the next HR project, the next investment in a plant, and so on and so forth. That was an amazing moment for me. I call the phase, the phase of hidden rejection. When you think you're getting traction and you're not. Often we think you're getting traction for multiple reasons. You are in meetings and people don't feel comfortable on pushing back. On you, you know, yeah. they want to be nice to you, or, or or maybe they're afraid of your sponsor, or maybe they do things to let you understand that they don't really support you. But people don't love to feel, to think that they're not loved, and so we're blind often to this rejection that eventually is happening in front of our eyes. So, long story short, many of us, many of the people listening to us right now, you find yourself in a situation often where you're pushing something, you think you're getting traction. And you realize that you're not getting the traction maybe six months later, one year later, when often in these kind of companies, it's too late. So what you need to do is to figure out a way to understand if people are with you or if they're not. And this is what I did now to answer your question 
first in 3M, and then I write, you know, first intuitively in 3M, then I, re I decodify what I was doing. And when I came to PepsiCo, I was very clear about the strategy. So what do you do? First of all, when people get excited about your ideas, right away, ask them a commitment. Ask them what I call a sacrifice. Ask them to give you money, resources, to be with you in death. When you ask that, a lot of people will be like, well, wait, 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 wait. I love, love what you're saying, but I have other priorities now. But you know, in a few months, we'll do it. That's great. First of all, you give yourself the possibility to explain the person uh, something eventually a person was not understanding. You're going to ask why you don't want to invest now. And then it, this person is going to ask you questions that give you the possibility, once again, of making your point in a different way. And maybe some of them will change mind and will be with you. But even if they don't, who cares? What you need to do is to find those few people that really want to drive the change. Usually they're one out of 10, is statistic, you know, and is a number connected to the percentage of human beings willing to embrace change. So it's widely published, usually it's between 10 and 11%. And so you find these people, I call them the co-conspirators, and with them, you build the proof points. This third phase is what I call the occasional leap of faith. The more the occasional leap of faith. Yes, because it's okay. a leap of faith. These people need to believe in you without having any proof that you're going to deliver anything, and it's, therefore it's very occasional. <laughs> but you find them. These are people that you know. I had the technique to find them. For instance, as soon as there was a new person taking a, a new position, let's say a new head of the consumer business in Europe, boom, I will be in their office pitching the new idea, letting them understand implicitly that they could do something with assets that I would offer that their predecessors didn't do. And, you know, and really, you know, this is another thing that I do all the time, thinking, how can I make you successful? Not me successful, you successful. I do it with my assistant, with my CEO, with my peers, with my team, with everybody. How can I make you successful with what I can offer? When you find a way to make other people successful, then you become indispensable or your capability, your team, your function become indispensable. And, and it's very valuable first. And the way to do it, you need empathy. You need to understand people. You need to understand what drives not just the business, but these human beings in their careers, in their personal life. You need to really connect with them. And so these are the co-conspirators. The way I did it in PepsiCo to answer more directly your question, well, first of all, I, there were two axes. We, we draw two axes. On one ax, I put all those projects that were, where somehow I could show some form of value of design in a very short term. I needed to show value quickly. It doesn't need perfection. It needs to show progress, some form of value. And then all these projects add people attached to them, but I needed to prioritize. I didn't have enough resources. It was me at the beginning, just me you know, with some money to hire agencies eventually. And so we start, you know, there were, the, there was this long list of business leaders and we started to identify the ones that were more, eventually they were the ideal co-conspirators. And once again, uh, one technique is people knew in position, they wanted to do things differently from the predecessor. Uh, another one was people, I'm, I'm just sharing a few filters. Another filter is people uh, that have already credibility in the organization, that already had wins under their belt, that wouldn't be afraid to take risks, to do something different. Uh, another criteria is people that, by definition, get excited about change. 
And there are very few of those. And, and somehow, you know, it's difficult to find them, but you see at least it's easier to find the people that you see are super conservative. Uh, one question, easy, and I will close. One question that is easy. When you ask somebody to do something that is not yet prioritized in the pipeline of initiatives for the year, you know, let's say we're in 2023, every business in PepsiCo has a list of things to do in 2023. Agreed, you know, me 2022, we all agree on what are the priorities of the year. If you go in and you're like, oh, we could do something different and amazing and, and the idea makes sense, uh, there are two kinds of people, two kinds of reactions. The people that get really excited are like, okay, let's do it. Let's figure it out. I don't have a penny. I don't have a person, but we'll make it happen. And, there are, and then there are the people that immediately tell you, well, your idea is great, but it's not prioritized in our you know, strategic plan for 2023. I don't have the resources. So already those you know that are not going to be your co-conspirators. All right. So just to close a couple loops, you've got phase of denial, phase of hidden rejection, phase of occasional leap of faith. What are phases four and five? I love that you asked me. I didn't want to bore you to death with all the <laughs> other phases. But so when you are in occasional leap of faith, you start to build a few pr proof points. So for instance, in PepsiCo, I, it was the redesign of the visual identity system of Pepsi. There was a big win for us that we did very quickly. And then this design of these smart machines to customize your dream. We did that. And then at a certain point, we had the leader of Mountain Dew and the business leader of Lays that arrived and they were like, oh, I want to do the same that you did in Pepsi, my brand. I was like, yeah, I love it. Give me the money. <laughs> Give me the resources. <laughs> so they, you know, they give you the money at that point because you have credibility. Many others decide still not to you know, take that leap of faith and they don't. The more proof points you have, at a certain point when you have a you know, critical mass of proof points, the company realizes that actually there is something valuable in that. And they're like, wait a second, we need to invest in it. We need to scale it up. That's when you move to the fourth phase. It's a very complicated phase. I call it, I call this fourth phase the quest for confidence. A quest for confidence. Why? Because often we misunderstand this phase as just a scale-up phase that is all driven by processes, ways of working, tools. It's essentially like when you acquire a company at the beginning in startup mode, and then you acquire and you need to scale it up. And therefore, yes, you need to introduce you know, processes, tools, ways of working. And, and it's true. You need that. And so this is the first variable to consider. Do you have the right people in, in your organization, people that were really, really good in startup mode as pioneers, as pirates, but do they have the right skills to scale up things, to really think process? And then, so that's, everybody knows, you'll talk to any manager and they will tell you, well, probably we need to evolve that organization to have a different kind of culture and mindset. The problem is that when you do that, often you end up killing the entrepreneurship the love, I love to call it the love, that passion, that wildness, that, you know, pirate kind of mindset of the startup phase. And this is what, where usually, when usually you start to kill also innovation. And, and the reality is that even at scale, when you are driving this transformation, when you want that kind of innovative mindset, you still need the same agility, speed, passion, uh, and willingness and desire to take risk that you need a startup in startup mode, the, the, the only difference is the, is the magnitude of risk. 
And that's why these companies often put people that are really good at managing the magnitude of risk, but they end up often to kill the risk and kill innovation. Yeah. So the quest for confidence, the reason why I call it in, I called it in this way, is that you need processes, tools, and scale, but you need also to build the inner emotional confidence in the organization uh, that drives that change and let you believe that what you're doing is the right thing to do. And to do something like this, you need to build a kind of culture, that kind of approach from within the organization. It's culture. It's all culture. And many people think that it's process. No, it's culture, even at scale. When you do that, you arrive to the fifth phase, holistic awareness. So you have also the name of the fifth, when the new culture is integrated in the DNA of the company. Sorry, what's the fifth fifth one called? I call it holistic awareness. So we're all aware of the new culture. Now, even that is something that I don't, I, I never want to reach. Meaning that the moment you start to arrive to that kind of phase with your culture, it start to, it's time to think about a new step, a new culture, a new approach that you want to introduce. You want to build a kind of mindset where you never arrive. Simon Sinek, you know, the, the author and the charismatic Simon, in his latest book, he talks a little bit about this, about this idea of companies, you know, two, two kinds of companies that are the ones that are really focused on achieving a goal. And when you achieve the goal, then you try to extract as much efficiency and productivity out of that. There are other companies that are just, you know, they have the mindset of always bettering yourself, always, you know, there is one goal and then you set another one and it's just an endless game. You just never stop going, going. On, on and on and on and on. And this is companies, but companies are built by people. And then you listening to us right now, what kind of people are you? You are somebody that has one goal, one dream, and you do everything you can to reach that. And when you reach that, you're going to be like, okay, I made it. And now I'm going to enjoy life. Or you are one of those people that as soon as you reach that goal, you're like, wow, I'm going to get bored now if I don't have another goal, yeah. if I don't have another dream, another project. Well, Innovators are like this. They're yeah. restless. They will keep, you know, dreaming and, by the way, learning all their life. So I'm smiling from ear to ear right now because our, our primary framework is what we call the S-curve of learning. And you're probably familiar with the S-curve from the adoption curve based on Everett Rogers' work. But it's that idea of when you start something new, you're at the launch point, you don't know what you're doing, and then you move it in this sweet spot. And then you get into mastery where there's this place where you've basically got the innovator's dilemma of you're really good at what you're doing and you, you feel confident and, and you like being here, master of all you survey, and yet you've got this dilemma because you need more dopamine. You feel like there's more for you to do on the planet. You feel like learning is the oxygen of human growth. And so you keep growing, you keep developing, and you move to a new curve. Um, and I, I love that that description you said where you feel like you've never reached the top because there's always opportunity to grow more. Just to close the loop on Martin, the reason I thought Martin was interesting, we're back to your friend Martin, is that it seemed to me that you did something where you painted a vision for him. You, you, you said, here's what it can be if you join me here at PepsiCo. So there was this sense of there was a desirability and you helped him see a vision. And I don't know, there was just something really powerful about that, of your ability to attract people to the vision of what you wanted to create. Yeah, look, I think if you have a dream and people feel two things, that the dream is authentic, but it's also feasible. <laughs> They're like, okay, is there, there is the dream, but you can really make it happen. Then the real innovators will be super excited to join you. 
And, and, and that's, by the way, if you are that initial dreamer, the original dreamer, let's say, when you build a new capability and you are the one you know, building the capability, it's so beautiful to surround yourself of, of other dreamers like you. Not just because they will help you in driving the dream that by yourself you couldn't do, right? You need that kind of caliber of people and that kind of thinkers. But also because they will come in with also their dreams in the same direction of yours, but dreams that will be able to inspire you in new ways. So you mentioned Martin that is still with us after 10 years, is uh, our vice president of innovation and, and, and industrial design. And Martin never stops inspiring me, inspiring me with these dreams that are again in total sync with mine, but they're really building on mine and they're inspiring me. And then they inspire new dreams that then end up inspiring him. And it's just so beautiful. It's one plus one that gives you 10, it's not two. And, 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 and there is a foundational truth that is so obvious, but often you don't see happening in many organizations. It's so important to surround yourself of people that are super talented, that are better than you in many different ways. You know, in the book I talk about this idea of the unicorns, these ideal innovators that have 23 different characteristics. The truth is that the, the unicorn doesn't exist. That is the reason why I call it unicorn. They are, Plato will place them in the world of ideas. It's something you want to tend to. And so you have these 23 characteristics that are somehow a compass that you want to have in life to understand where you need to invest, to grow, to better yourself, to gather insights, knowledge, and, and, and become a better leader, but mostly a better person. So because you cannot have all of these characteristics, what I've been trying to do all my life is not just filling those gaps by myself, bettering myself, but is also finding people that eventually were extraordinary in certain traits that you know, eventually I didn't have, so that as a team, that we become a real unicorn living in this reality today because we are all working together, filling the gap of each other. Martin is, uh, you know, is engineeristic kind of background, his ability to uh, understand companies uh, and, uh, and, and both from a business standpoint, a technological standpoint, and how society is evolving and imagining really what could be the right platforms to invest in is unique. Uh, I have probably, you know, a very well-developed ability to feel people, to understand people, to inspire them, to take them with me. And, and I just mentioned, you know, a couple of characteristics that we have that are complementary to one another. So when, when you put me and Martin together, we can be really powerful together. Now, Martin is one. I have seven more diary reports, seven more vice presidents in different parts of the organization. Each of them brings to the table, you know, a series of unique characteristics and each of them, though, is very aware of the other 20 plus characteristics that are really important. And we all together try to nurture each other and invest in ourselves, growing individually as unicorns, but then as a team as well. Mm, I love that, that when that each of you are aspiring to be a unicorn, but at this time, when you put each of you together as a team, as a composite, you're able to have a, a unicorn culture. Any manager of people listening to me right now knows how insanely difficult it is to do that, right? Because we're human beings and we have our bad days, we have our jealousies, we have our 
you know, agendas. We, we, we are human beings. So even though my filter number one, and the HR knows because I gave it to them years ago. So this, is, this is not about books, podcasts, and interviews. This is real. Filter number one is kindness, is being a good human being, and being a good person. It's officially a document that I gave to HR many years ago. So even though that's the filter I used to hire all my people, and especially even if I have hundreds of people in my organization, so I cannot really look at each of them. I have 15 design centers around the world, so it's impossible to control that everybody, you know, reflect that kind of idea. But with my diary reports, I can. I mean, they're with me every single day, and no matter where they are in the world. And so even if in my direct line, these people are those kind of kind, nice human beings, still, it's complicated to put them together. Imagine when you have jerks in your organization. You should get rid of them. I mean, they are not necessary. They produce so much inefficiency in your company. In a world where efficiency is a key word, effectiveness, what you do is fundamental, where there is a competitive landscape where you need to be as efficient as possible, something that you didn't need to do 20, 30 years ago. It was a completely different kind of... Um, scenario. In this kind of world, you cannot afford the lack of productivity, the lack of kindness, and therefore inability for people to work together, produce. Um, what's a question that people ask to determine if someone's kind? How do they know? I, I think is extremely difficult. Um, and I use a little, you know, a series of different techniques that I observed behavior. Well, uh, yes, but how do you observe the behavior of somebody in one hour conversation interview, right? It's so insanely difficult. So uh, this is what I've been doing over the years. First, I've been very, very public about this idea of love, kindness, empathy. Public means, and I talk about this in, inter in interviews, in, uh, uh, on stage at conferences. I published my first paper about this topic uh, 13 years ago for the Design Management Institute Review, Love Letter to Design. So first, you know, you're public about what you believe in. So the people that think, oh my God, I mean, this guy really is too romantic for me. They just don't come to you, right? So there is a little bit of filter in there. Then you are really public about this and you work with a series of recruiters in your company, outside of your company, that know what you're looking for. And these recruiters, usually they have contacts and connections and they bring people that they know more than in one hour interview, right? So if they know that your filter is that kindness that you talk about, they will bring people with those kind of characteristics. If you work with recruiters over the years, they will know also the people that eventually they brought in, they failed, they didn't match really the culture of the company. And so they will learn with you ongoing. And then finally, you know, I think you can feel a little bit the kindness in people, his body language, his behavior, his, you know, certain things that they eventually they say is the words that they use. But 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 we all make mistakes. We all have our limits. So I, I think I have a little bit of empathy, but I also know that I make mistakes all the time in reading people because it's so difficult. And so what I do, I have my diverse team of people interviewing this candidate so that, you know, each of us will see a different thing in these people. And then we get together, we discuss what we saw, and then we take a decision there as a theme. You made a statement in the book, which I loved, and I want to read it and give you an opportunity to respond. You said, trying to conform with the community of which we are a part is a very human instinct. And yet the people around us should be used only as points of reference 
as we form our own unique, genuine, and distinct point of view. The more we chisel away at the metaphorical stone, I'm feeling Michelangelo right now, from which we are born, the more we can become an exclusive work of art, magnificent and unmistakable, with incomparable features, forms, finishes, and details, all different and never seen before. For people who are listening and wondering and inspired by what you've said, is there one thing that you would recommend we do to chisel away at this masterpiece? I think that the first thing we need to do is to be curious and learn, 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 learn. What does it mean? Well, read books, uh, content you can find online, listen to podcasts like this one, and then travel, meet people, uh, get out of your comfort zone and talk with people that are different from you. Uh, Try always to think, from the person I have in front of me, no matter the title, the position, uh, what can I learn from this person? Instead of thinking, oh, that person is different and fearing that difference, fearing that diversity, embracing the diversity of thinking and, and background and really always learning, learning, learning. The more you accumulate insights and data, the more you can start to carve out your unique point of view on everything. So there is a step of, by the way, it's a never-ending step of learning. So you increase your knowledge, your awareness, your ability to read the world. And, but at a certain point, and something that some, sometimes people don't do, you need to find your angle, your point of view. And too many times, you know, we follow brands, we follow celebrities, and we try to uh, adapt to that image. I want to become like that person. And instead, yes, let's follow people. Let's be inspired by them. But then let's always think, what is my unique point of view on that thing? And and activate your critical mind is joining 3M as an example, as a personal example. And instead of saying, okay, I'm going to be a designer for 3M, I'm going to do what they expect me to do, is to think, what can I offer that is unique? What is my point of view on this job? What, What do I bring to the table? You know, for the people listening to us, the companies that hire you, they have no clue of what you can offer. They have no clue. You are the only person in this planet that know what you can bring to the table. So it's up to you to understand the company, the culture, the expectations that they have, but then tell them, look, I can do that, but I can also do this. And this is unique to me. And this is the value, the unique value that I bring to the table. But you need to start with that unique point of view. It's just yours. All right. So at the end of every coaching conversation and podcast, I ask the question, what in this conversation has been useful for you? It may be something you've said, but it also may be just an idea that you had. So what's been useful for you, Mauro? Well, you know, I I did many conversations and interviews about the book and never somebody mentioned the page that you mentioned. And it was... And therefore, often we don't go in that direction. We don't talk about this unique point of view, this uh, authenticity and originality in the perspective that you have in the world. So I want to thank you for reminding me today of the specific page that I particularly love as well. And, and, And even though I feel that I always try to have that point of view, I think it's so important to be aware of something has been uh, 
relevant and meaningful for you in your journey and share it with others. This generosity in sharing what really helps you. I talk about this often in relation to the idea of kindness, for instance. I met in my life so many kind, amazing business leaders or people that did great things in the world of music or sport, in many different kinds of industries and categories. Um, and I met also many that are the opposite of being kind. I wish that the people that reach that kind of success by being loving people, nice people, kind people, will talk about this. Because too many times in the working environment, we perceive kindness as a weakness, as a soft spot, as something that the leader shouldn't have because you need to be tough. You need to be you know, a little bit of a shark to succeed. Uh, and instead, Today, in this society, especially in this world where we need to be, as I said earlier, so efficient, so productive, so agile, so flexible, kindness connected with empathy and love is so fundamental uh, to be successful, to help your company be successful, but mostly, at the end of the day, to be happy and to make sure that the people around you are happy as well. If you multiply this for the number of people that embrace this kind of approach in our society, in the end, we may end up having a much happier society for all of us to live in. Mm, beautifully said. Mauro, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you to Mauro for joining us today. As always, I have many takeaways, but I'll go with just a few. Let's start with his experience at 3M. It was a reminder that when we're brought into a new situation, we need to execute first to prove that we're the right choice. You may have some great ideas for changing the space and the place around you, but early success gives you permission to make those changes. And while you're executing on whatever they brought you in to do, don't forget to look for your people. Naoto said an individual unicorn may be tough to find, but a unicorn team, that can be built. Second thing, I liked his advice to those who want to sponsor someone who makes change. Follow Indra Nui's playbook. She loved Mauro's ideas for PepsiCo, but she wouldn't force other leaders to take his advice. Instead of pushing them, she nudged them by making sure everyone knew Mauro had the very public support of the CEO. You sponsor a changemaker by standing behind them, not in front of them. And then there was this idea of hidden rejection. If you want to know, really know if people are on board with your idea, ask them to make a commitment. Mauro talked about all the times he thought he had a foothold when really the execs were just afraid to push back in the moment. Their minds were already made up even before Mauro spoke. Commitments are how you find your tribe of real change makers, not just talkers. Of course, you heard the part about where he spoke about never being finished. That is what the S-curve is for. That's how you keep disrupting yourself. When you get to the top one S-curve, you find the next one and jump. Finally, don't confuse love with profit. Put your love into innovation, your love into your people, not into the bottom line. If you want to do more studying, check out Mauro's love letter to design. We've included a link in the show notes. Also, check out my interview with Gabrielle Blair, founder of Design Mom, episode 149. And on the topic of building a high-performing team, check out episode 250, why you should hire people for roles they aren't ready for yet. 
I love hearing your questions and comments on previous episodes via email. If you'd like to now talk to me, talk back to me, visit the disruptionadvisors.com forward slash podcast and leave me a voice note. I just may play your question, your comment on a future show. Thank you again to Mauro for being our guest and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of the Disrupt Yourself podcast and share the episode if you think there's someone else who could benefit from this conversation. Thank you to our producer, Justin LaVrier, audio engineer, Whitney Job, production assistants, Alexander Turk and Stephanie Brummel and production coordinator, Nicole Pellegrino. I'm Whitney Johnson, and this is Disrupt Yourself. Disrupt Disrupt Yourself.